Our scripture reading today and Tom's teaching is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. Please listen as I read and see it on the screen behind me. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true also. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you that you have given it to us so that we might begin to understand just a little about you. Thank you that your word tells us about us. Thank you for your great goodness, Lord, and we praise you. We pray for Tom's teaching now that it would honor you and that we would grow and you would be glorified. And we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Good morning. My, uh, my title for this message is Good Grief. Uh, there's a whole lot in this chapter about the difference between grief or sorrow that builds up and grief that tears down. 
good grief versus bad grief, if you will. This is one of the most deeply personal passages in all of Paul's letters. In order to understand what's going on here, we have to go back a little bit and look at the backstory. We have to look at what led up to Paul's writing of this epistle. Roughly three years after God created the church in Corinth by Paul, through Paul's faithful ministry, uh, Paul sent the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. And he was staying at that time in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor when he sent that letter. At the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul planned to visit the Corinthians pretty soon again. And he sent Timothy to encourage the church there and to get a report back on how they were doing. Timothy's report turned out to be very concerning to Paul. Uh, a movement was growing in Corinth that called into question the legitimacy and the authority of Paul's apostleship and Paul's ministry. Even worse, uh, a movement that distorted the gospel that Paul had faithfully delivered to the people in Corinth those years earlier. After first hearing of this mutiny against his authority and thus against Christ's authority, as we'll talk about in a minute, Paul made an unplanned visit to Corinth. And I'm going to go to a little more blown up version here. Paul, uh, Paul made a visit to Corinth uh, that was brief. It was, it was a surprise visit. And he had hoped to kind of nip this rebellion in the bud because he, he didn't like the direction it was going at all. Uh, but as we saw in the first several verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that surprise visit did not go well at all. We call it Paul's painful visit to Corinth. As a result of the confrontation that happened during that short visit, Paul soon sent a letter to the Corinthians by the hand of Titus a letter that God did not preserve for later generations. Uh, we call that letter Paul's severe letter. He refers to it in chapter 2. He refers to it in chapter 7 in the passage that we're in today. We call that letter Paul's severe letter because it was a harsh rebuke. It was intended to chastise the, the Corinthian saints not for their participation in the rebellion, but for their failure to deal with the rebellion. For their failure to take action against those who were, who were fomenting this rebellion against Paul. Now Paul had arranged with Titus when he sent him with the letter that at an appointed time, after delivering that severe letter, Titus would meet with Paul at the port city of Troas, north of Ephesus, and he would update Paul. He would debrief Paul on how the Corinthians had received this letter of rebuke. But when Paul came to Troas, Titus was not there. And Paul was deeply concerned for, his, for Titus, whom he considered his spiritual son. I think fearing even that Titus may have been killed by the instigators of this rebellion once they heard, once they heard read this letter that Titus delivered from Paul. Not knowing what he would find when he got there, Paul then sailed from Troas to Macedonia. 
When he came to Macedonia, there was still no word from or about Titus. And Paul was, his, his concern for Titus and for the church at Corinth was amped up at that point. It was deep and profound. But then by the kindness of God, Titus showed up in Macedonia. He met up with Paul, having just come from Corinth. And Paul was filled with joy to be reunited with his beloved spiritual son. He talks about that in this passage. His joy was magnified even more because the report that Titus brought to Paul from Corinth was a very good report, a surprisingly good report, considering what he had heard earlier. Paul was elated to learn of the genuine remorse, the godly and good grief that God had created in the hearts of the Corinthian saints through Paul's faithful rebuke. He was greatly encouraged to learn that those saints had decisively turned away from endorsing or even allowing the unfounded criticisms of Paul and his ministry. And beyond that, they had very decisively punished the ringleader of the rebellion against Paul. And that is also mentioned in this chapter. Titus told Paul of the deep affection and loyalty toward Paul and toward Titus that God had kindled in the hearts of these dear saints in Corinth, using Paul's severe letter as the catalyst for that, that marvelous change of heart. So that's the backstory. That's the context for what we find here in chapter 7. And, and certainly some of that context is, is discovered because of what's in chapter 7. Throughout this passage, Paul speaks in first-person plural, us, we, because he sees his beloved co-workers as one with himself in ministry and in usefulness. The, the Corinthians team over time included, it included Timothy, it included a man named Silas, also called Silvanus, and it included Titus. In the last chapter, chapter 6, Paul said, verse 11, Our mouth has freely spoken to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Paul's appeal to these dear saints whom he considers to be his spiritual children in Christ is for them to be as unrestrained in their affection for him as he has been in his affection for them. Things have clearly gotten way better than they were, but there's still some residue, there's still some hurt feelings. And Paul wants that stuff to be behind them. He wants to move forward in, in godly love. Now, continuing with that same appeal, Paul makes this personal and deeply heartfelt appeal to the Corinthian believers. He says, make room for us in your hearts. The strong rebuke that had come from Paul to these saints had been grievous. It had been sorrowful, both to them and to Paul. But Paul's deep Love and affection for these saints had never wavered, not even for a minute. He again asserts what he has asserted all along in verse 2. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now, Paul is not trying here to finally convince the Corinthians of his integrity. 
as the rest of the chapter will make clear, God already, God already took care of that. Paul is reminding them of what God had made clearly known to them, that he and his co-workers had been innocent of the accusations that had been raised against them by some in Corinth. He immediately adds in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This verse is really critical to what's going on in the passage. Paul's not trying to rub salt in the wound that these believers had experienced because of their miserable failure at first to deal with the opposition that had arisen against Paul. Instead, he's appealing to them to respond to his great affection toward them with that same quality of God-sourced love. But Paul's goal in these words goes beyond repairing the residue of hurt that some in Corinth still felt because of all that had happened in their relationship with Paul and his band of brothers. Here at the end of verse 3, Paul is welcoming the Corinthian saints to now become part of that band of brothers. Instead of remaining mostly on the receiving side of godly love, Paul is calling them over to the giving side of godly love. He's calling them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Notice the order of events in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he says, You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, most people generally assume that life comes before death, right? But what Paul is saying here is a very clear pattern in his epistles. For the child of God who truly follows Christ, death comes before life. Death comes before life. And God uses our dying for the sake of Christ to produce life in others. Back in chapter 4, Paul said that we who bear the light of Christ in the world are, quote, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be displayed or manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then he says, so death works in us, but life in you. Death works in us so that life may work in you. Now, Paul is saying to those same Corinthians, now it's time for death to work in you, that life may work in others. The daily dying of Paul and his co-workers for the sake of the gospel had been used by God to create spiritual life in these Corinthian saints in the first place and was still being used by God to nurture that life as recent events had yet again proven. Now Paul wants these Corinthian saints to know that God intends for Paul's way of life to be their way of life and our way of life. He's saying to the Corinthians, you came off the sidelines finally. You jumped into the battle in order to deal with the instigators of this mutiny that was brewing in Corinth. You did well. Now stay. Remain together with us in the ongoing battle for the glory of Christ and for the souls of men and women. Die 
daily to self, together with us, that others may live. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What was the love of Christ like? Self-denying, sacrificial love. And that's what Paul is saying to these saints. That's what God intends of you. That's what God intends for you. It is the self-denying, other-centered life of Christ that Paul is seeking to build into the hearts of these believers. That's what this chapter is most essentially about. The self-denying, other-centered life of Christ in his children. In verses 4-7, through seven, Paul expresses his, his great confidence and delight in all that he has seen God do in the hearts of these beloved saints. He says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn. Conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, and that word is often translated depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. When Paul and those who were traveling with him came from Ephesus to Troas and they did not find Titus there, they went on to Macedonia, they did not find Titus there, they experienced no rest. They were afflicted at every turn. They were faced with conflicts without and with fears within. Paul himself said that he was greatly downcast. His love for Titus was as a father for a son. And his love for the saints in Corinth was the same. Paul feared for Titus' life. And he feared that the saints in Corinth had been sitting on the sidelines letting evil men gain greater and greater influence over Christ's church there. And these were actually quite reasonable fears because sitting on the sidelines had been a chronic problem with the Corinthians. This is the same local church that back in, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, had failed to deal with a member of their congregation who was having sex with his own stepmother. One of the powerful lessons of this chapter is that failure to act when there are threats against the well-being of Christ's church puts us on the wrong side of God's battle. As Jesus said in Matthew 12.30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, divides, tears down. The Corinthians' inaction at first against the opposition to Paul had been equivalent to taking sides with the enemies of Christ and his church. Inaction 
has often a worse effect than less than perfectly successful action. We should also be reminded uh, that the call to follow Paul's example means that our lives will absolutely not be insulated from painful conflict or from painful emotions. The myth of the serene Christian life is just that. It is a myth. Apart from Jesus, I don't know that you'll find a more stalwart heart in the Bible than, than Paul's. Yet Paul speaks here of his own struggle with external conflicts, internal fears, and even depression. In chapter 1, he said at one point, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Does that sound like the serene Christian life? He said, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Beloved, doing the work of Christ on earth will absolutely not protect you or insulate you and me from difficult and hurtful interactions with other people. It'll do the opposite. It will do the opposite. It will draw us into conflicts that we would never have had to touch if we were not called to be agents of the living God in Jesus Christ. If you speak and if you act for Christ's sake, as Paul did, there will be times when it will seem as if your efforts to be useful to Christ are helping no one, blessing no one. There will be times when it will seem as if the only thing that you are accomplishing is your own alienation from the people that you love. When that happens, you will be in the very good company of all of the faithful prophets and apostles of God. And more importantly, you will be in the very good company of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this chapter tells us anything, it is that in those times, God intends for us to trust Him all the more and to abandon all trust in ourselves. And, and guys, that means also to abandon our own perceptions about the success of our ministry on Christ's behalf and to trust that He is the one who will grant success according to His terms, according to His will, and not according to ours. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That treasure in these jars of clay that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Don't you think God intends for us to know that? How do you think God's going to teach us that? if we are sometimes confused about where that power is coming from. He's going to humble us. That is a gracious thing. The Holy Spirit who shines forth the light of Christ through you and me is working at all times to convince and remind us that that light does not come from us. Even the Apostle Paul had to be reminded of that. So surely you and I need to be reminded. 
Here in verses 4 through 7, Paul affirms to the Corinthian saints that God has brought a marvelous resolution to his deep concern for Titus and for them. He tells them he is filled with pride in them. He is filled with comfort because of them. He says, I am overflowing with joy. This is a marvelous turn of events by the hand of God. Why, why is Paul so joyful? Because he learned through Titus that their response to his letter of rebuke had been a godly response in every respect. And Paul's joy was made to overflow when he learned of the longing, the mourning, the great zeal for Paul that Titus had seen in the hearts and in the actions of these dear saints. Paul's joy was not at all because he sought the approval of men or depended on the approval of men. I hope that we, we are all really clear on that. His joy was because he knew that their change of heart toward him demonstrated purity of heart toward God. And that Godward change of heart, which is what true repentance is, a Godward change of heart, had been reflected powerfully in their actions. God had yanked them off the bench and had put them to work in a manner that had greatly honored Him and protected and built up His church. When you and I find ourselves in the thick middle of painful conflict that demands painful confrontation, we can either run to the sidelines for safety or we can run for Christ's sake into the battle. Usefulness happens in the battle, not on the bench. So the choice should be clear. If we choose inaction when God requires action, it won't be God who budges. He is relentlessly at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. So we should fully expect to find no safety, no comfort, and no joy in our evasion of the things that He requires of us. If we try to stay on the bench, it's not going to be good there. That will be by His doing. I've said it many times, there's nothing as miserable on this earth as a miserable Christian. That's the grace of God. He has something way better than that for all of us. In verses 8-12, through 12, Paul pulls back the curtain to show us how God brought about this wonderful transformation in the hearts and actions of the Corinthian saints. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I love that rendering. You were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Nasby renders that 
New American Standard renders that last part. What avenging of wrong. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Verse 11 tells us that God's, God used Paul's rebuke and the deep sorrow that it caused in the hearts of these saints to create an eagerness in them to, quote, clear themselves. They wanted to be vindicated. They wanted their great love for Paul and their joyful submission to his apostolic authority as submission to Christ. They wanted that to be known to everyone. God had used Paul's harsh rebuke to stir up in them great indignation toward those who had started and supported the rebellion against Paul and thus against Christ. The resurrected Christ blinded Paul to make him see on the road to Damascus. He called him to be his ambassador to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. Paul acted on Christ's behalf. So to reject Paul was to reject Christ. God had used the same rebuke to create in these saints a godly fear of the terrible consequences for the church of their inaction, their original inaction in this matter. He had created a righteous zeal in them to confront and to right the wrong that had been done against Paul and against Christ. God's work in their hearts had resulted in a very decisive punishment of the ringleader of that rebellion. Paul now tells us that by their decisive action, they had at every point proved themselves to be innocent in the matter. They had never been on board with the accusations against Paul. Their sin was a sin of omission, not of commission. But there's an important lesson here, and that is that sins of omission can often be every bit as destructive as sins of commission. God had convinced them through Paul's painful visit and letter that that omission could not stand. There is no such thing as neutral ground when Christ's church is being torn down instead of built up. There's a vitally important lesson in these verses about how God uses grief or sorrow in His church. Verse 10, Paul says, Godly grief, literally grief that is, a, that is according to or in keeping with God, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Now you and I need to know which kind of grief is at work in each of us when we are faced with grief. The salvation of which Paul speaks here is not only eternal salvation, but also salvation in the here and now. It is daily deliverance from the power and the crippling effect of sin. And the repentance that leads to that salvation is also not a one-time thing. A lot of people don't know this, but the very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the Wittenberg door is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me read that again. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I believe He was spot on. 
repentance, the turning of mind and heart and direction back to God and to the things that delight God is a continual work of the Holy Spirit in every redeemed saint. And the Spirit uses godly grief over sin and over its terrible consequences to bring about that turning back to God over and over again throughout our lives as His children. Paul's contrast here between the outcome of godly grief and the outcome of worldly grief must not be missed. Godly grief produces repentance. That Godward turn that brings salvation, renewal, deliverance, both to the one in whom the repentance has occurred and to others through that one. Worldly grief produces only death. And in the end, what's so amazing about this is that, that the grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, in that, in that grief there is no regret when it's done. There's no regret. There's delight. And that's where this whole passage goes. There's joy. There's comfort. There's, there's rejoicing. So how do we know whether our sorrow, our grief is godly or worldly? Well, the answer that we find in this passage is all about whether our grief is self-focused or other-focused. And that, brothers and sisters, is a big deal. Paul's grief was not grief for himself. It was not self-focused, self-absorbed, self-protective grief. It certainly was not self-pity, which by the way is every bit as selfish as the greatest arrogance. Even Paul's repeated defense of the legitimacy and the integrity of his own ministry was not self-focused. He knew that if any of the churches refused to acknowledge and submit to his apostolic authority to receive his teaching as sourced in God, they would be casting off the authority of Christ. Paul knew that would be catastrophic for any local flock of God. And he loved these saints far too much to let the seed of such a rebellion go unchallenged. Paul spoke and acted out of godly love for the children of God, not out of self-exaltation or self-protection. The grief he felt over the seed of insurrection in the Corinthian church was grief for Christ and for Christ's church. Selfish grief is bad grief. Useless grief. Worldly grief. Sinful grief. Good grief is always other-focused for Christ's sake. has to be both to be good. Good grief is other-focused for Christ's sake. In the early stage of, stages of the rebellion in Corinth, many of the saints there had no doubt been grieved by what they saw happening, but their inaction betrayed the fact that their grief was selfish. Other-focused sorrow produces loving action. Self-focused sorrow produces inaction. Why? Because inaction always looks like the safest route. 
Self-focused, self-protective sorrow cripples. It keeps us from doing what God would have us do. It blinds us to real well-being, and it even blinds us to real threat. God transformed the Corinthian sorrow from self-protective, useless sorrow to godly and useful sorrow by changing the object of that sorrow, the focus of that sorrow, from self to Christ, from self to Christ's church, from self to Christ's faithful servants who lived and loved to build up Christ's church. In verse 12, Paul tells the Corinthians, this is great, he tells the Corinthians that his purpose in writing the earlier letter of rebuke was, quote, not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, he's talking about himself, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. That really gets my attention. Paul's goal in his harsh rebuke of these saints had not been to fix damage done to his own reputation and influence. His goal had not even been to ensure that justice was done against the the instigators of the rebellion. His goal had been to get the Corinthian saints to know the love they had for him and for his co-workers. Not to make them love him, but to make them see and be aware of the love that God already created in their hearts for Paul and for his fellow workers. Because that's what God does in the hearts of believers. He makes us love believers. Read 1 John 4. Isn't this excellent? If ever there was an exalted goal behind an effort to correct Christians, this is it. I will say again that the goal of Paul's rebuke, just like the cause of Paul's grief, was entirely other-centered for Christ's sake. And God had more than blessed that God-honoring purpose for Paul's confrontation of these saints. Now, at the end of this painful episode, the believers in the city of Corinth had become pervasively aware of the great love that God had instilled in them for Paul and Titus and their co-workers for the kingdom of Christ because of their love for Christ. In the concluding verses of this chapter, Paul comes back to the same comfort, joy, and confidence that he expressed in verses 3 through 7. The confrontation between Paul and these saints had been used by God to produce a truly excellent outcome. He says, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Isn't this great? He's saying, he's saying all the good things we said to Titus about you have proven true. And all the good things we said about you to Titus have proven true. Did I get that? I, get, I don't know if I covered both bases there, but you know what I'm saying. And his affection for you, Titus' affection for you, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. And then Paul finishes by saying, I rejoice because I have complete 
confidence in you. Wow. <laughs> Considering where this had gone before, that's quite a statement. Paul and Titus were now filled to overflowing with comfort, joy, and even with confidence in these dear brothers and sisters. See, when you have witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit to bring a fellow saint from sinful self-protection to godly repentance and courageous self-denying love, it becomes a lot easier to expect good things from that saint going forward, does it not? So many Christians don't respond that way to correction. But when one does, or when a whole church does, guys, that, that is a confidence builder like no other. That's what Paul's saying. It happened to him and to Titus. Their confidence in their brothers and sisters at Corinth had been made complete. My brothers and sisters here, I say to you as I say to myself, let us be that kind of recipient of correction. Let us respond that way with good grief, godly grief, and godly action. How do you know when your sorrow, your grief, is good grief and not sinful grief? You know when it is other-centered for Christ's sake and not self-centered for your sake. My brother Greg Watson said to me on Wednesday, it should, be, it should naturally come to us that if we got, get caught up in our own selfishness, none of the key components of this chapter work. <laughs> That's a great statement. You and I have a choice to make, beloved. And it's a choice we must make daily. Love others as Christ has loved us and be mightily used by God or run for the sidelines to protect ourselves from hurt and be useless to God. If we choose to love well on Christ's behalf, that will always, always demand death to self every single day of our lives. It's not once and done self-denial, it is not occasional self-denial, it is a lifestyle of self-denial for the sake of Christ and of the, of the redeemed saints of God. And the magnificent promise of God to us is that as we imitate Christ in self-denying love, God will impart real and eternal life to others and he will nurture that life in those whom he has made his own. That's not something that might happen. That's something that God promises he will do through you and you and you as jars of clay inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God, bearing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to the world. That's God's promise. Our part is good grief, godly love, self-denying, other-centered, Christ-focused action toward others. The assignment is very straightforward. The rewards, the blessings, even in this life, are beyond measure.
Dear Father, turn the eyes of our hearts away from self and toward Christ that we may be willingly and joyfully useful to you even in times of greatest sorrow. Pull us off the bench and put us into the battle for the souls of men and for the kingdom of our Savior. Bring each of us into that faithful band of brothers and sisters whose self-denying, other-centered love builds up your church and brings life to the lost. We ask this in the name of our perfect forerunner in self-denying love, our great God and Savior, Jesus. Amen.